You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. Uh, And I sincerely mean that. Uh, It is a treat to be with you and to be able to open God's word with you here this morning. Uh, I was looking at my Fitbit. I don't know how many of you own a Fitbit, uh, but apparently I've been in preacher mode for about 10 days now. My heart rate has not come down below 92 beats per minute. So uh, preaching is helping my weight loss. That's great. So it's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, My name is Mark. I am the director of soul care here at Harvest. That's our counseling ministry here out of the church. And, uh, And today it's a privilege to be able to share with you a little bit about what's been on my heart, what's part of our soul care ministry. Uh, But I have to confess to you right off the top, this does not make me an expert. In fact, what we're talking about here this morning is actually an area that's under great refinement in my life. Uh, The last few weeks have been incredibly convicting in my own heart, and uh, and it's been refreshing. It's been good to see how the Lord has been working in me, and I trust that he will be working in all of us here this morning. And so this morning we're going to talk about the kind of the touchy subject of evangelism. We're going to be talking about what it means to live missionally and and what that looks like in our modern day culture. Uh, Here at Harvest, we have a saying, you've probably seen it on our website. If you've been through step one, you would have heard it. And it says that we are a people who are about uh, participating in the Great Commission, but doing it in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And, And it's this idea that we are called, Christ calls us in Matthew chapter 28, to go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. And so missional living is twofold. It means that we are boldly proclaiming the gospel, but then lovingly walking alongside those who have accepted that gospel to become more Christ-like. And the problem is here is that while all of us are here this morning, and I presume you've heard this phrase, I presume you've heard of the Great Commission, but my problem here this morning, and it's, it's apparent in my life, is that here in the West especially, uh, missional living is kind of done in a way with. It's uncomfortable, it's awkward, we're in a culture that doesn't promote you expressing your ideas in a way that would seem confrontational or offensive to others. Um, it's, it's an awkward time to be missional, and yet this is the calling that God gives us. It's literally the last thing he left his disciples, and the first thing we as Christians ought to be fixated on, is how do we fulfill the Great Commission? And so it got me thinking about, well, you know, why is this? Why is it that we have such a hard time, historically, being evangelistic in this day and age? And it got me thinking um, about my own household, <clears throat> And uh, so you'll have to bear with me. I, I'm, I try to be not the proud, kind of obnoxious parent, but I realize um, none of you have probably seen my kids. And, and the reason for that is, is because my family, we typically attend Saturday evenings. And so there's a good chance some of you are seeing me for the first time, and, and that's okay. So you're going to have to bear with me while I show you pictures of my family this morning to illustrate this point. So uh, starting with my wife, uh, she kindly advised that I not display her picture to the entire world. So we're going to skip my wife, but um, <laughs> you will see on the screens behind me, uh, first and foremost, my little boy, Callum. And uh, so that's Mr. C. Uh, How many of you have heard of Dr. Seuss? So you've heard the phrase thing one and thing two? This is thing one, all right? And thing one has not changed. That picture is a year and a half old, and he is still as insane today as he was a year and a half ago. 
uh, despite the prayers of his mother and I, he has not curtailed in any energy whatsoever. Uh, he has a heart of gold, though, and if you do know my son, you know he has one of the most gentlest spirits you will ever encounter. Uh, he is a very kind and compassionate little boy, and uh, which works well because there's a second part of our family, and this is thing two. Uh, this is little Nora, and uh, I know she's a heartbreaker, eh? Um, those blue eyes are tough, tough to navigate when she's in trouble. It's, it's hard as a dad to see those big blues and not succumb to the temptation to just let her get away with whatever she wants. Um, she is a beautiful little girl, a bit of a firecracker. She makes us laugh. And, and the reason I share you those pictures is, A, so you can see the faces of the people I'm about to talk about, but to give you context as well. And so when I get home from work every day, because my wife has been home with the kids, and, and they're a handful, and, and you know she's made dinner. She's a fantastic, she's a, an amazing wife. Uh, so what I try and do is when I get home is to kind of give her a break as I take the kids in whatever state they are in and basically I try and look after them. And so I come home and we go in the backyard, we'll run around the backyard. Callum loves to build forts in the basement, we'll build forts in the basement. Nora likes to cuddle and read and so my job is to try and navigate the chaos of keeping two kids happy for roughly three hours when I get home from work. Understanding my wife does this all day long and is apparently much better at it than I am. So, uh, so as is the custom, I'm looking after them. After dinner, I take them upstairs, and I work through that terrible time every night called bath time. It's you stink, you need to be clean, but you don't want to die in the tub either, so you're constantly watching as they dump buckets on each other's heads, and Nora's kind of fluttering because she can't breathe through the waterfalls that Callum is making, and so you're navigating all of that. They're getting into their pajamas, they're brushing their teeth, they're doing all these things, and they're getting into bed, and then Jen comes up and we do our family devotions. And so for whatever reason, Jen had to stay downstairs on this particular evening, and so this is a, this is a big moment in fatherhood when your wife finally entrusts you to watch both of them at the same time. And so I'm upstairs, and I'm sitting at the end of Callum's bed, and we're reading through his Bible, and we're doing our devotions, and we're praying. And Nora, I can hear, I can't see her, but I can hear her walk behind me and go into the bathroom and close the door. Now, historically in our house, Nora can walk around anywhere. She's probably not going to get in any trouble. Callum, on the other hand, will stick things into outlets. He will throw things down the toilet. He is the one you cannot leave alone. So because I can see Callum, I'm not really worried about Nora. So Nora goes into the bathroom, and then a few minutes later, shrieking, just horrific shrieking. And so calm, cool, collected, I get up. I walk over to the bathroom, and right away I see what the problem is. Is As I go to open the door, she has locked it and cannot open it. And so I bend down and I whisper, I'm like, Nora, we can fix this. Just don't let your mother hear you. <laughs> you need to stop screaming. We're all going to die. <laughs> like, you know, stop. And I tell her gently through the door, just turn that little thing you turned, just turn it backwards. I can't. I'm like, yes, you can. Stop it. <laughs> And not cool, not calm, not collected, I begin to hear my wife weaving through the home, and I'm telling her, Nora, we got five seconds. You gotta move, woman, let's go. And turn it, I'm like, turn it counterclockwise. And, and literally she says, I don't see a clock on the counter. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, we're toast. And so I, I'm working on the door, I'm trying to explain it to her, and, and dads, you know this moment where there's a child crying, and you know your wife is en route, you can't see her. You can't hear her, but you know she's there. 
and I'm bent behind the door, and it's like you're walking, and you know how you get that, just that instinctive feeling, someone is looking at me. You could be on a bus, you could be walking down the sidewalk, someone is staring at me. That is what I feel in the back of my head. And I turn around, I'm like, all right, here's the situation, honey. We have a bit of a hostage situation in the bathroom. It's under control, we're looking into it, we'll get her out. And my wife immediately starts shoving granola bars under the door, because my daughter hasn't eaten in half an hour and she could die of starvation. And she's yelling through the door, Nora, are you okay? Are you stuck? Are you trapped? Are you cold? I'm like, are you cold? I was like, the heat's on in the house. Like, I was like, she's not a newborn, she's two. And, and so at this point in time, my son comes out and just kind of casually just says, hmm, if that were me, I'd probably be getting a spanking. I just thought, what is wrong with you, son? Get back in your bedroom. And so I'm talking through the door. I'm talking to Nora, and I'm saying, come on, honey. It's not hard. It's literally just the opposite of what you did. She's not getting it. Uh, my wife is shoving sandwich ingredients under the door now. you know. And my son comes through again. He says, you know what, Dad? If that were me, I probably wouldn't get dessert for a month. And I just thought, clearly devotions did not work tonight, son. You need to go back to your room and read your Bible again. And, uh, and so finally, I have an Allen key, I've got screwdrivers, I've taken apart the door, we have opened it, my wife rushes in, you know, checks her vitals, she's good. Nora survived the crisis. And my son stands in the doorway, almost arms open, and just says, what? She's not gonna get in trouble? And I looked at him, I said, buddy, she's two. She didn't know any better. I was like, why do you want her to be in trouble? Why is it you want her to get, be spanked? Why is it you don't want her to have dessert for a month? And my son, who, who's genuinely, hear me on this, I'm not ragging on him. I love him to death and he's the best kid I know. Um, but I remember having this beautiful conversation with him where I explained to him, I said, you know what, buddy? Uh, moms and dads, uh, we have a God-given responsibility to love and to care and to d discipline at times uh, children. But we're not making these decisions in our own strength or in our own thinking. We don't operate by our own convictions. We operate from what God says in his word. And here's a little foreshadowing us for us here this morning as we look at the story of Jonah. Here we have a little girl who literally does not know her right hand from her left. Doesn't have a clue what's going on. And yet God calls us sometimes to be gracious and have pity on someone. And so what good does it do for me to punish Nora? You know how difficult that's going to make potty training when she won't close the door? I don't want to put up with that. Let's just give her the pass. Let's give her a hug. Let's make sure she's okay. Let's love our sister. And, and I remember it was this beautiful moment where he came out of the room and he went to her and he was like, Nora, I was wrong. You can have dessert. <laughs> I thought... My work here is done. And then I turn them over to their mother. And then, you know, but we do this with evangelism is I think what happens in our culture is we, we understand the Great Commission. We understand the logic behind it. We understand it's commanded of us. But we operate out of our own convictions. We operate out of what we think is right, what we want to do, what works best for our situation. And the problem with that is, is not only is it blatant disobedience to God's call in our life, it's also detrimental to our own spirit because whenever we take our eyes off the Lord, we inherently put them upon ourselves. We become prideful, we become selfish. And what happens is evangelism is done by the wayside because for the vast majority of us, I'm guessing, it's not comfortable and it's not easy. 
And so I don't think we have a situation in our culture where we don't do evangelism because we're afraid of what someone says or we're afraid of what someone may ask. I think we do it because in our hearts we're lazy. And that's a harsh truth for us here this morning that in the West, I truly believe this, that what comes first before we even get to what someone might say or respond to the gospel, it fundamentally just conflicts with our convictions or what makes us happiest and most comfortable. And so this morning, we're going to look at Jonah. If you haven't gotten there already, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah's a fascinating character. It's one of my most favorite books of the Bible, and you guys are familiar, familiar with the story, I'm sure. Uh, Jonah is a minor prophet. He's the first prophet who is called by God to actually go outside of Israel and spread good news. He's also the first prophet to blatantly disobey God's call on his life. Rather than responding to what God called him to do to go to Nineveh, you know the story. Jonah decides to board a ship and go the absolute opposite direction. He goes the opposite way, and when God sends a storm that threatens to break up the ship we see in Jonah chapter 1, uh, Jonah, rather than working through his heart issues, rather than working through uh, what he has done wrong, restoring his life and repenting before the Lord, what does he choose to do? He volunteers his life by being thrown overboard in hopes that he may drown in the ocean. You think about that for a second. Think about the statement you are making to God there that you would rather die before seeing someone else come to Christ. And Jonah had good reason. We know the story of Nineveh. We know that they were a direct enemy to the nation of Israel. They were part of the Assyrian Empire, which put them at geographical odds with Israel. But the second thing is, is we know that Scripture tells us a great deal about the character and the conduct of Nineveh, which was atrocious. You go home this afternoon, you read Nahum chapter 3, or you read Hosea chapter 13, and you can read about how the blood ran through the city's streets, how there was torture, how there was murder, how there was a total distrust and a total abhorrence towards God. Babies were being murdered, pregnant women being opened in the streets and then being murdered alongside their unborn children. Nineveh was a grotesque place. Jonah had right reservations about why he should go to Nineveh. But understand, God has a call for us. God has a command for us to go and make disciples, go into all the world. And so Jonah is willing to throw himself overboard. He's willing to be thrown overboard. And we're told that God sends a big fish. The fish swallows him, and for three days, Jonah spends time in, the, in that big fish. And he has a come-to-Jesus moment. In chapter 2, you can read the prayer of Jonah and how he uh, writes his heart before the Lord. He gets spat back out. And in chapter 3, we have this amazing story of how 120,000 people, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, tells us that Nineveh has 120,000 people. And we're led to believe in chapter 3, 120,000 people came to Jesus because of the gospel being preached through Jonah. Praise the Lord that God works in spite of our brokenness. Amen? Praise the Lord that God's grace is bigger than any one person. It makes me think, and it, and it makes me just uh, pause for a moment and think about, you know, what would happen in our region? What would happen in our city if we were sensitive to the call that God had put on our hearts? That he has called on us as children of his. What would happen to our cities 
if we took missional living responsibly. We saw that through a broken, uh, dysfunctional man, 120,000 people came to Christ. What would happen if we had that same attitude in response to calling? It's amazing what God can do. And yet here's the problem, is just as fast as Jonah repented and God used him within that very same week we see in chapter four just the immense brokenness that's happening in Jonah's mind. We see how, just like how my son needed a bit of a spiritual correction, he needed to be reminded of who is the one who sets what's right and wrong, who is the one who determines what's good and right and profitable. Just like he needed to learn that, I need to learn that. Jonah needs to learn that. It is not up to me to determine what is right and good. It comes from the creator, the sustainer, and author of all of life. Join me in pray before we read here. Lord, thank you so much for your love and for your grace. Uh, God, I pray that this text would come alive for us this morning. God, I pray that the weight of it would hit us and strike us as we consider, you know, are we living missionally? Are we people who are participating in the great commission and the spirit of the great commandment? God, would we be going into the world making disciples because we love them? And more importantly, we love you. Would we be people whose uh, walk match our talk? Would we not just be hearers of the word, but doers, Father? Would you do a work in us all here this morning? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Two questions for us to help us understand if we are living missionally here this morning. The first question comes from this first block of text, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me than to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you well to be angry? We know right away that Jonah has valid reasons for why he does not like Nineveh. We know they are enemies, we know that they are violent, we know that they are an evil people. But what's fascinating about this is when we read verse 1 here, the translation gets a little whitewashed when we bring it into English. What it literally says is this, but it was pure evil to Jonah, and he was angry. In other words, there's something more going on here, more than just the fact that Nineveh, he had to go to Nineveh, he had to speak to these people. There's something even more sinister going on in here, and the answer comes in verse 2. He says, is this not what I said? Is this not what I predicted? See, Jonah is not just mad because he doesn't like going to Nineveh and he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He's not just mad at Nineveh's character. He's actually mad at God's. You think about how profound that is for just a moment. That Jonah is so backwards in his thinking and is in so much need of a spiritual alignment that he is more flustered with the fact that God was honest and true to his character than the fact that he had to go there in the first place. How much hate do you need to have in your heart to quote scripture back to God to try and justify why someone else should not receive Christ? And that's effectively what he does. He quotes Exodus 34 verse six, you're a gracious God, you are merciful, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
And this is the very thing that Jonah takes issue with. We see in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, he's talking about Nineveh and how they repented, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In other words, Jonah isn't mad at Nineveh's character. He's actually mad at the Lord's. Jonah is operating out of a completely different paradigm than God's. And this is the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Here's our first question when we're thinking about are we living missionally? We have to ask ourselves, are we following our convictions or God's call? Am I following God's call or my convictions? You see, here's the problem with this is Jonah very readily forgot an all true uh, truism in the Christian faith. Granted, Paul wasn't born yet, Ephesians wasn't written yet, but we know in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For grace you have been saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. And what we've seen here, and this is what happens time and time again in my life, and I'm sure it happens in yours as well, is that when we take our eyes off of what we are called to be, when we take our eyes off the Lord, we inherently look at ourselves. We become prideful. And we begin to operate out of our own thinking, out of our own convictions, rather than what the Lord deems is right. We have to ask ourselves a very serious question this morning. Are we living according to God's call? We may not be as vocal as Jonah. We may not be as, uh, as bold as Jonah in stating his anger and his desire to die before what he thinks is wrong should come to fruition. We may not be bold as that, but I would say this, our inaction projects the same outcome. When we choose not to engage in missional living, we may not vocalize it, we may not even think it, but we're accomplishing the same end. We are not acting out of God's love, we are not acting out of his grace and mercy, we are acting out of what feels right and what feels appropriate and proper for me. And that is a very slippery slope, folks. It's a very, very slippery slope. He says to God, please take my life for it's better for me to die than to live. You think about just how profound that is. Jesus warns us of these people in Matthew chapter 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I'm terrified that that would ever be said about me. I'm terrified at the notion that someone would be able to see my heart so clearly and purely and they could make that kind of distinction that this man says some good things, but look at his life. It's in total contrast to what he preaches. I never want to stand before the Lord and have him utter the words, your heart was far from me. That's a terrifying prospect here this morning, folks. Are you following God's call or your convictions? Growing up and still in our house, music is a, is a big, big deal. I'm sure many of you love music. Has the ability to make you happy, has the ability to mellow you out, has the ability to pass time and make things enjoyable. Uh, music is fantastic. And if you're of my age and stage, you might be familiar with a band called DC Talk. Apparently no one, Alex Louie is the only one who's heard of DC Talk, okay. Uh, DC Talk is a, is a great Christian rock band. Uh, they were big in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Uh, many, many good albums. Uh, highly recommend you go home 
And if you haven't heard them, it's, it's epic 90s music. And, uh, and whether I was going to play hockey, writing an exam, whatever it was, DC Talk was my hype music. When I needed a shot of adrenaline, DC Talk is what got put on, whether it was a cassette, not to date myself, or a CD, okay? And on their album, Free At Last, great album, uh, but on track number four, I always skipped. It was boring. Uh, it wasn't fast enough, it was, didn't catch my interest, so it was just almost impulsive. Every time I was listening to the CD, I just knew, oh, song three's done, skip over, we're going to five. And the song that I always skip was one called, What If I Stumble? And it's a song that deals with the very concept that we are dealing with right here, where we can have Christians who profess God with their mouth, but deny them with their lifestyle. And it talks about this idea of, can we come back to God? Can we get, repent and be accepted when we live out of our own convictions rather than embracing the life that God has called us to? And while it was a slow song, it's an incredibly profound song. And in the middle of it, in this instrumental period, um, a voice just starts preaching. And this is what the voice says. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Isn't that true? You see, folks, I don't think people are overly that concerned about you bringing a revolutionary, a revolutionary maybe even an odd concept to them. I think people can be pretty open-minded these days. What scares me is the fact that our lifestyles already discredit us by the time we actually have the courage to talk to them. We are people who honor Jesus with our lips, but we live differently. We might do most of the things, we might do 80% of the things, but in this area, if we dropped it, we are communicating something other than what we want to do, our unsaved friends and family and those in our sphere of influence. Am I following God's call or my convictions? Because here's the reality for us folks, and I say this to my counselees, I say this in this message, and I've said it often. Whenever there's a difference between what you say and what you do, whenever there's a difference between what you believe and what you do, there is always a need for repentance. Always. Every single time when your mind deviates from what God expects and calls us to, there's a need for repentance. And so church, we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we willing to repent for allowing our convictions or our attitudes to supersede what Christ has called us to? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to sacrifice what might seem fair or right to be bold enough to bring the gospel to someone who desperately needs it? The story doesn't just stop there, though. It gets almost even more problematic for Jonah. And we see in verse 5, you can follow along with me. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. It's an important word. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do. 
well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. You see, Jonah's heart gets far more sinister. He's not just mad at Nineveh. He doesn't just hate Nineveh. He's not just mad that God did what he said he would. We see in verse 4 that God asks him a question. He says, do you well to be angry? Jonah doesn't even respond. He just leaves. He just escapes. This is a recurring pattern for Jonah that when something is asked of him that makes him uncomfortable, he leaves. He goes the opposite direction. Rather than celebrating with the 120,000 people who have newfound hope in the Lord, he chooses isolation east of the city. And he builds a booth for himself. And that makes sense. Nineveh, if you were to put it on the map today, and it's been found, archaeologists and history have told us that Nineveh is actually modern-day Mosul in Iraq. It's not a cool place to live. All right, Someone with my physique would not be comfortable in Iraq. Okay, it's hot. I don't like the desert. I don't like being uncomfortable. We have a fantastic small group here at Harvest. People we love dearly and, and a couple from our small group, they were over in our home just a couple nights ago. And you have to understand, I will go to great lengths to be comfortable. I will pay ridiculous amounts of money to keep my house 21 degrees when it is 4,000 outside. I will pay for that. I don't want to be hot. I don't like sweating in my sleep. I don't like waking up feeling like I just finished running a marathon. I want it to be cool in my house. And this other couple, they literally bring their snowsuits when they come to our home. <laughs> They're from what I would call a much more, uh, a warmer climate, we'll say. And they literally, the, the, poor, the poor girl, we literally bring out duvets for her as she wears her coat and shivers on our couch for four hours. And I tell her, my house, my rules. You can freeze. You made the decision to come over. But I'm not going to turn on the heat when it's summertime so you can be comfortable. I like to be comfortable. Jonah likes to be comfortable. He goes outside the city. He builds a booth for himself because it's 100 degrees outside. And then we see at the beginning of verse 6, or sorry, at the end of verse 6, we see that Jonah was exceedingly glad. What's he glad about? Because God appointed a plant, he appointed it, and it says this, to be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. You see, he was exceedingly angry at God moments ago for being true to his word and saving Nineveh. Now he's exceedingly glad when God starts to do things his way. When God starts to alleviate his discomfort. It's a profound truth for us, and I think it's very true when we think about evangelism here today as well. Here's our second question. Not only do we need to consider, am I following God's call or my convictions? Second thing we need to ask is, am I focused on my comfort or God's compassion? Am I focused on my comfort or God's compassion? And we're going to see very quickly, there's a lesson in here that God tries to teach Jonah. And we see his response very, very quickly. Verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Now understand, this plant is no weed. Okay, likely knowing the area, knowing the region, it's a castor bean plant. Castor bean plants can literally grow overnight. They can grow 8 to 10 feet tall and their leaves can be a foot wide. 
So this is a big sucker of a plant that's grown. And God appoints a tiny worm to attack it. We'll circle back to that. He appoints this worm and it attacked the plant so that it withered. The sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. He was faint. And look at his response. Again, he wants to die. One commentator put it this way. Foolish man that thinks his life is bound up in a weed. In the first storm in chapter 1, Jonah had been brought to the edge of eternity, asking to be thrown overboard in, the pres- in preference to seeking the face of the Lord. Here in the second storm, he once again seeks the relief of death itself. The heat, the wind may have been unbearably fierce, but Jonah's readiness to opt out of life is becoming a habit, and it's all because he's not happy about God's mercy. You see the contrast there? Whenever we are focused on ourselves, it comes at the expense of God's compassion. It comes at the expense of God's mercy. Jonah is so wound up in his own comfort in this moment that it doesn't matter what happens with this city. He is furious with God again because his comfort has been threatened. He goes outside the city and and the audacity to think that after salvation has come, you to think you could sit on a hillside and think somehow God's going to change his mind. That God can somehow deviate from his own rules, his own law, his own word. Jonah is so full of himself that he thinks he has the authority to convince God of something contrary to his very character and being. And it fundamentally comes because he's thinking about his own comfort rather than God's compassion and his mercy. This tiny worm attacks this plant, and we're told a second storm comes. The word is literally scorio. So those of you who have spent time in western Canada, you might have experienced what's called a Chinook. Okay, some of you know what that is. A Chinook is a tropical breeze that kind of cools a little bit over the mountains. It gets a little humid, and even if it's the middle of winter, you can be in Alberta, and this breeze will come across, and it'll feel like summer. It's phenomenal. The Middle East has a little more hardcore version, okay? A scorio, it's already 100 degrees in Iraq. Scorio has the ability, it's a dry, very intense wind that can raise the ambient temperature of a region 18 to 25 degrees. So imagine walking through the desert, wanting to die because it's hot, that would be me, and you come across a preheated oven and you just stick your head in it. That's what Jonah is experiencing. This massive plant that gave him such intense shade that brought down the temperature so much that he was comfortable, that plant now disappears. It's now 118 degrees outside and he's miserable and he wants to die. He's worshiping his own comfort. Here's what Matt Carter says great author, writes a fantastic book called For the City. He says, worshiping comfort, Jonah loved a plant while God loved the city. Worshiping comfort, Jonah sought personal pleasure while God sought the hearts of people. Worshiping comfort, Jonah desired Nineveh's judgment while God extended Nineveh grace. Do you see the contrast there? In every instance where Jonah worships himself, it comes at the expense of someone else. God does not operate. 
He does not have an economy in which we think about ourselves constantly. We're called to serve, we're called to love, we're called to engage others, to be in community both for discipleship and evangelism. Not once are we called to, to, to be fixated on our own comfort. And yet I think this happens way too prevalently in our culture, where if it means we're gonna be uncomfortable or if it's gonna cost us something or if the results aren't a clear, sure-cut victory, I'm not gonna risk it. But here's the thing, church, and I believe this with all my heart, it is God who saves, but we need to celebrate obedience. And I practice this with my kids. We tell them that when we get those little cards at Christmas and Easter and we're told to go and uh, invite our neighbors to come to Christmas Eve services or come to Good Friday service, I tell them the victory here is not necessarily whether Mr. Ron comes to our church. It's did we obey? That's all we can control. And man, my kids show me up. I get those little cards and I'm thinking, about, all right, when am I gonna find the time? When is it gonna be convenient? Who can I bring with me to talk to Mr. Ron? My son literally broke the screen door of Mr. Ron's house to make sure he got his come to Christmas Eve card. Didn't even think twice about it. He ran over, literally drop kicked his door down to make sure Mr. Ron got his card. Mr. Ron wasn't even home. I told him, it's December 20th. I told him, Callum, he's not home, buddy. And he literally looked at me and he said, then we will wait. <laughs> I thought, good grief, man. <laughs> like, it's cold though. You know, my comfort. I wanted to be comfortable. My son wanted Mr. Ron to come to church. That's humbling. That's humbling when a four-year-old has more faith than me. It's impressive. To what extent are you sacrificing someone else hearing the gospel so that you can be comfortable? Understand this, I really believe this with all my heart, it's not about having all the answers. It's not about putting together a solid presentation. It has purely to do with, are you going to be obedient? And I believe that if God is who he says he is, let's trust him to do the work he says he will do. Let's worry about our part. Does that make sense? Are we worried about our comfort or God's compassion? And so where does that leave us today? I think in summary, we need to ask ourselves this one question when we consider the so what. Do we have a heart for our city? Do we care? Do we care about our family members, our coworkers, those in our sphere of influence, the people we rub shoulders with? Do we care? Do we love them enough? to be vulnerable with them, to risk something that they may hear the gospel? Would we be something to help them see Christ? You see, Paul understood this principle in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to what he says. It's a mouthful, but you get the gist. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like the one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Hear this. I have become all things to all people, so that at all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You know what happens, church? We share in blessings when we're obedient. 
That's true of anything in the Christian life. If you are obedient, you will be blessed. It's not the reason we do it. It's just the, it's just the currency that happens. There is something edifying and, and just joyous in being obedient to the Lord. And Paul gets that. He is willing to be whatever it takes so that some, he's not expecting 100% ratio. He's hopeful for one. He's hopeful for maybe two, that God would do a work through him so that one or two people would come to faith. Can you say that about yourself? Can you with integrity say, I will do whatever it takes to see someone come to Jesus? A number of months ago, uh, Jen Louie, our children's uh, director here, uh, she came to the staff at a staff meeting and she said, we got Harvest Summer Kids Camp coming in a, in a month or two. Uh, we still need some help. If you have any names of who might be able to help, please let me know. And because uh, and, and, I'm an idiot, I, I put my hand up and I said, sure, I'll volunteer a week to spend with children. <laughs> and... And I had no idea what she would assign me to. I had no idea what I would do. I figured I'd stand beside a bouncy castle and hopefully double bounce some kids and give them the thrill of their life and then they go home and it's fantastic. She came back to me and she said, Mark, uh, the Lord has really laid it on my heart that you need to lead a baking elective. <laughs> and I said to Jen, the Lord has failed you <laughs> because you do not want me baking with children. <laughs> you don't want me near an oven. You know, and, uh, and I remember laughing with her about it, and of course, I was happy to do it, and thankfully, my wife is really the one who did it. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to take credit, I'll be honest. Uh, she just told me what to do, and it was fantastic. Uh, but here's the thing, and I can only say this because it's been a humbling point for me. Uh, I'm not coming with any pride. Please don't hear this. It's because the Lord has shattered me in this area in the last month. I said yes because I was willing to be all things to anyone so that a child could hear about Jesus. That's the heart. That, that's what this is about. I didn't want to make cupcakes. I wanted to eat them. <laughs> I didn't want to make them. But man alive, I'd wear a goofy apron and a massive hat and I'd say words I'd never heard of before if it meant that I had an opportunity and I prayed for this each and every single day. I said, Lord, if there's one, send them my way. Are we willing to be all things to all people so that they would hear the gospel? Do we have a heart for our city? And it's gonna get real practical, church. If your small group is meeting this week, if it's not, still get the questions. It's still applicable for you as an individual. The accountability question is this. Who is the one person in your life who needs to hear about Jesus this week? Will you join me in that mission? Will you humble yourself, even if it scares you to death? And this week, is there one person? It could be a child. It could be an in-law. It could be a colleague. It could be your bus driver. It could be the person sitting beside you here this morning. Are you willing to be all things to all people that God might work and save some? Are we willing to do that? I'll close with this last illustration. On June 6th at 6.49 p.m., I had the privilege of witnessing probably one of the coolest things in my lifetime. Uh, marriage is great, my wife is great. 
Um, so not knocking marriage at all. Uh, but I think even my wife would agree the same thing. I think one of the most fulfilling things we've got to observe on that June evening was seeing my son receive Christ. Blew my mind. And I fought him on it. I tried to talk him out of it. I said, buddy, I was like, you're young. I was like, do you understand this? Can you adequately convey to me what grace is? Can you tell me what Jesus accomplished on the cross? Can you tell me what sin is and how it has wrecked your heart? Can you tell me that you're honestly, with full integrity, not doing this simply to make me happy? Because that's the fear, right? As a parent, you're giddy as anything on the end of their bed, but it doesn't mean anything if it's not real in their heart. And so I fought him on it. We talked for probably a good 20 minutes. It's the longest conversation I've ever had with him. Normally he's off kicking a soccer ball, comes back in the house bleeding, gets a Band-Aid and goes out and does it again. 20 minutes I sat with him, looked him in the eyes, and man, that kid was succinct. And I, honestly, I came away thinking, who am I to get in the way of a childlike faith? Isn't that what Christ calls us to? So Lord, I'm going to trust you. I trust his answers. Let's do this. And I got to watch him receive Jesus. I saw salvation in front of me. The joy. You know, it was 8 o'clock at night by the time we were done celebrating and he'd eaten two massive Sundays. I didn't care. So you can stay up all night at this point. You're saved. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you tell your mom that when she gets home. <laughs> you know? It'll be fine. <laughs> you know? It was fantastic. I went out on the back deck and I remember it was, some of the, it was one of the best quiet times I can remember with the Lord. Just thanking him. But you know what wrecked me that evening? 6.49 rolled around. My son received Jesus. 11 p.m. comes around. I'm heading to bed, and I sat on my daughter's bed. And I realized there's still one in this house. And she's young. And I get that she can't understand it. But the thought of my daughter not accepting Christ terrifies me. I bawled. And here's the thing, church. I think that's expectant from a dad to his daughter. I think you guys would be shocked if that wasn't a concern for me. But I'm ashamed to say that I wish I had that same heart for everyone else in our world. And that's what's at stake, is we're not called to love people at a distance. It's called to be personal. It's called to be real. My heart needs to break the same way it does for my daughter as it does for Mr. Ron. I need to pursue him with the same tenacity I would my child. I get it's a different relationship. I get that she's my daughter. But understand, there's no... <laughs> we're all God's creation. God calls us to have one heart on this, that we would live missionally to see Christ save the lost, family or otherwise. And that's been convicting for me. That's been a hard truth for me to swallow this week, is do I love people in the same way I love my kids? Am I willing to risk what I risk by not engaging this world? Am I willing to risk that simply because I know my daughter better? where I have more time with her. I can make a hundred excuses. 
That doesn't change the reality. We're called to go to all nations, all people, regardless of our convictions, regardless of how uncomfortable it is. Are you willing to do that? Do you have a heart for your city? Man, what it would it look like if God did a work here in York region? What would it look like if God did something in your neighborhood or in your workplace or your family? Man, I pray that we have a heart on this that would be unified and that this church would be recognized as a church that's got its priorities straight. We're not a bunch of people that come here and pay lip service and have hearts that are far from the Lord. But we leave here with such an immense joy out of seeing what Christ has done for us that we cannot keep that for ourselves. And I think that's what it takes, folks. I think the more lifelike, the more respect, the more you understand and appreciate the realness of God's grace in your own life, that will naturally compel you to share that with others. And so ask yourself this morning, do you have a heart for our cities? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and for your grace. Lord, thank you that even in my brokenness, even in my failures, uh, God, you are faithful. Uh, you are a God who saves. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray uh, so long, Father, that we would see revival in this place and in our city. God, that we wouldn't just be people that would sit idly by and wait for others to do their work. God, would we be active would we be engaged? God, forgive us when we become complacent. Forgive us when we neglect or lose sight of just how immense and how powerful your grace is. God, you are the God that appointed the fish, you appointed the storms, you appointed the plant, you appointed the worm. All of this is made possible because you are a good, creative, and sustaining God. Forgive us when we think that we are God and you are not. God, would we understand what it means to revere you, to fear you, to understand that it's only because of you that any of us has hope. Would we live with that in real time, Father? Would we feel that in our hearts? Would that move us to do even things that are out of character in our culture, in our society, because your love has moved us so much? God, would we have a heart for this city? We ask that you would move in incredible ways, bring a revival to this place. Lord, I long for the day that 120,000 people in this city may find you. It might take a church, it might take a soul, Father. But for whatever your plan is, Lord, bring it to fruition. Do it through me, do it through this church. God, help us to have a heart for our cities. We pray these things in your name. Amen.